Shalom and blessings. This is Pastor Clifton McDowell Sr. here at the Church of God of East New York, located in the heart of Brooklyn. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray this week's sermon blesses and encourages you for the journey. God bless. Now enjoy the sermon. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Thank God for this time of worship. Thank God for, amen, those who serve in the house of the Lord, who have given themselves to the ministry. Amen. As unto the Lord. We thank God for them. Thank God for you. And so it's in Jesus' name that we come. We acknowledge him who is the Lord and Savior of our life. On behalf of myself, our First Lady, and all the ministry leaders and leadership of this congregation, uh, we say welcome. We say happy Lord's Day to you. And also want to give a shout out um, to Olivia, Olivia Laveau. Tomorrow will be her birthday, I understand. And we, wanted, we hope that it will be especially special for you. Amen. Amen. We've been going, we started a series called The Anatomy of a Servant. The Anatomy of a Servant. And in this sermon series, we're exploring what does it mean to be a servant? And asking ourselves the question, how is my life, my life, taking um, inventory of myself, how is my life as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ, contributing to the purposes of Christ in the earth? In the first sermon, we dealt with a servant's call. We told you and submitted to you that any person who has answered the call to salvation by virtue of accepting the call to salvation, you have also accepted the call to be a servant of God. The call to salvation is also a call to serve. We are called to be ministers to others, and in particular, those that are in need in areas God calls us to specific areas. Um, he has gifted us. He has given us resources that he wants us to use to minister to others. But always we have the mind that our heart must be motivated. It must be motivated toward generous service for the glory of God because we believe what the Scripture teaches us is the priesthood of all believers. We are called to be a, a, a nation of priests as the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the body of Christ, and the body of Christ transcends nation. It transcends city. It transcends ethnicity. We are called to be a nation of priests told you to remember, and I hope you remember, amen, that no one is excluded and no one is exempted from active service. We've been commissioned by God to serve him and to serve others every day of our lives as we lift up Jesus and raise up generations of disciple-making disciples. You are his workmanship. 
Amen. You've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do them. In other words, there is service with your name on it. There is service that you have been um, divinely and uniquely called to, prepared for, designed for. Warren Worsby says that ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels of grace to the glory of God. You have a calling on your life. Stop wasting time trying to figure out do you have a calling on your life? It is plain, it is clear, you have a calling on your life to serve as a servant, to serve his purposes by doing good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. We're not called to sit on the sidelines watching others minister, watching others serve, or watching others being served. We have a call to serve. And so if you accept the biblical perspective that every believer of Christ is called to minister in this fallen world as a servant, if you accept that biblical perspective, and I submit to you that being a servant is a heart matter. It is a matter of the heart. The underlying attitude, the, the perspective that we bring or the approach that we have to life that will result in acts of service and ministry in this fallen world. It's a matter of the heart. And so that's really what I want to talk to you today. I want to talk about a servant's heart. See, because in the world that we live in, the default orientation in this secular culture, culture, if you will be honest, and sometimes this secular orientation has infiltrated even into the church, it underlies what our motivation for the efforts that we put forth are. The orientation that we see exhibited in this secular orientation, you see it in your, on your job, you see it in your schools, you see it in your neighborhood, you see it in your family, and sad to say, sometimes you see it in the church. What is it, preacher? It's that attitude that asks, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? In the body of Christ, we must be careful that this underlying attitude does not infiltrate ministry. And so in this sermon series, text that we've been using out of Matthew, um, you will see, you have seen already, and you will continue to see that Jesus minces no words. When he says that the approach that we are to have in life 
has to be this way. He commends one type of approach and he condemns another type of approach. He is telling us that the, there has to be a contrast between the world and the church. That there has to be a, a bold contrast between the attitude that we have in service as believers of Christ. When you think about greatness, I want to I ask you a question. When you think about greatness, when people you know think about greatness, what is the criteria that they use in order to measure greatness or determine that someone is great? I, I, those of you that can, I want you to just write it in the chat. What are the things that people use to measure or determine greatness? The world that you live in, on your job, in your family, in your community, in government, in life. What, is, what are the criteria that you have observed that people look for to determine greatness? Just write it in the chat. What are those kinds of criteria that people embrace to measure a person's greatness? Perhaps you have said, some of you have said, well, people um, measure greatness by the abundance of somebody's wealth. You have made millions, yea, billions. You are a great person. Maybe you have put there in the chat that people use to measure somebody's greatness by the level of fame. That their, their name is a household name. You can't go to a continent on this planet and folks not know that person's name because of their fame. Or you might be saying it is the position of influence that someone holds that determines their greatness. You might say it's a person's title. The title that one holds becomes a criteria for greatness, and so everybody's looking for a title. Everybody wants a title. We'll pay for titles. We, we want folks to give us titles. Because that becomes the measure of greatness. Or it may be found in an educational degree. The more degrees one has, the greater the person must be. Or maybe some of you have said, what I have heard determines greatness. The criteria that I see around me that determines greatness is the amount of power, authority, or influence that somebody welds over other people. 
Perhaps it's simply how much public exposure someone has. And we live in a day where you can get public exposure to millions. Tweet the right stuff, put the right kind of picture in there. And when I say right, I don't mean that it's right. I just mean that it garners attention. Some things are written, some things are put out there just to get exposure, just to get your name out there. And we think if another, if we get enough public exposure, then we must be great. Or this person must be great because everybody knows them, everybody's talking about them, their name is all over social media. But I submit that in the kingdom, greatness depends more on the attitude with which one approaches responsibilities and relationships and less on the criterias that this world and this culture embraces. Let's read our text. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, picking it up at verse at verse 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, their sons, the mother of Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked the favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you, you don't know, Jesus says to them, he tells her, you don't know what you're asking, and then he turns to James and John and says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? They respond in a duet. We can. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. You're going to taste this stuff, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten, the ten heard, Judas is one of the ten, Peter is one of the ten, Bartholomew, Thomas, all of them, when the ten heard about this situation that the guys put their mama up to, they were indignant, they were ticked off, they were upset, and their upsetness was directed at the two brothers. Plain to see. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He calls them together, and instead of him taking this as an opportunity to give them a piece of his mind, no, you didn't. After I don't spend 
three, almost three years with you, this is what the attitude is? What was the point? Have you ever seen me act like this? Has this been in one of our instruction sessions? He doesn't get upset with them. He takes it as an opportunity, as a teaching moment. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. And then he, he, he looks, I can imagine, he pauses. And he looks at each one of the twelve and says, not so with you. That may be how they do it there, but not so with you. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And he says, just as the Son of Man, me, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. As I look at this account of this event, I, I look at this mother, the mother of James and John, and, and I look at her faith. And her faith is commendable. She dared to believe that what Jesus had said was true. That he had a kingdom. That he would rule over a kingdom. She had the faith to dare to believe that Jesus would rule over a kingdom. So her faith is commendable. Her posture, the posture that she takes is one of respect for Christ. She comes and she kneels before him. You know how they say, how they say sometimes, listen, I don't mind you, I don't mind you coming, but you better watch how you come toward me. Watch how you step in toward me. Because if you step toward me wrong, you might get a reaction instead of a response. But her posture is one of respect. Her tone. The tone that she comes is good. She comes asking, not demanding. It's a request. It's not a demand. But her motives, her motives are suspect. Her motives are selfish. Her motives was about honor for her sons and her family rather than honor and glory for God. Some of you saying, well, I ain't got no problem with that. 
And that's the problem. Go look in the mirror and say, I am the problem. No, no, don't do that. It's interesting that though she's the one that comes, Jesus directs his response to James and John and not their mother. That suggests that Jesus knows that James and John endorse what their mother is asking. They might have encouraged her to go and ask on their behalf. In their minds, when they thought about the kingdom of God, when they thought about the Messiah coming, they envisioned in their request a lofty cabinet position in the Oval Office of Jerusalem in the Lord's administration. And Jesus says, y'all don't know what y'all asking. And the ten get a whiff. They overhear. Maybe one or two of them heard. And they went back to the other one and said, you, man, I, you won't believe what I just heard. Do you know what James and John just did? James and John are jockeying for position in the kingdom, man. Yeah. And they got their mama to go and ask. The Bible said they were ticked off. They were angry. Jealous about the two, about James and John really securing positional advantage over them. When I see there, when I see, when I read this, you know what I say? There's hope for us. There's hope for us. If, if this, after almost three years, of personal executive training. There is even among these first disciples who are being trained to, to, to give leadership when Jesus leaves. If even among them exists this selfish ambition, this rivalry, if this is in the raw material, then there's hope for us now. Jesus had to fashion the leadership for the church from this raw material. And so to me, it's not surprising that we too need to be careful how we can have inappropriate motives in our lives and ministries. We too can be guilty, guilty of allowing the same attitudes to plague that plague the disciples in this account We can allow that to become present in our lives and in our ministries. We can allow it to seep in into the way that we serve. We can carry resentment 
with, within, when, when our proposal is rejected in the meeting, we, we can become workaholics at the expense of other priorities. Why? In order to satisfy a deep-seated craving that we have for attention, for praise, for the spotlight. We have to guard ourselves. I remember Dad Shepherd used to say, there are some folk, they only shine when the light is on them. The only time you see them um, shining is on a Sunday morning when they're up front. And, but when the spotlight is on somebody else, you would think this was all a waste of their time. We have to guard ourselves from serving out of hearts that are self-seeking, self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-serving. Jesus used the self-seeking attitudes of his disciples as an opportunity to convey a crucial point. Only by serving does one become great. If you want to be a great in the kingdom of God, learn how to serve. And learn how to serve with the right motive, with the right attitude to exercise lordship as the secular rulers do is foreign to the sacrificial serving spirit spirit that should mark every believer. It is a servant's heart that must provide the motivation for all of our ministry endeavors. Because hear me, you can't fake servanthood. You can't fake servanthood. Unless we have the heart of a servant, we cannot successfully pass ourselves off as caring people. People will see right through you. You can't fake it. And so we have to ask our Lord, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to root out any remnants of this world's attitude in our hearts and we have to cultivate a sacrificial serving attitude within us. And might I say, apart from supernatural resources, changing the attitude of your heart is mission impossible. Cultivating a servant's heart is easier said than done. It is difficult. It is to be perpetual. It is an ongoing process. That is not an optional endeavor. We got to pray about it. We got to pray about it and, and reflect on our motives. Reflect on our attitudes when it comes to servanthood. And then we've got to learn how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed at how much the Holy Spirit speaks to some people about other people, but never seems to speak about them to the person about themselves. 
It's amazing to me how so anointed some people are about other folk but never seem to see themselves. You got to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You got to ask him. You got to be like David. Lord, search me. See if there's anything in me that offends you. The Holy Spirit speaks to you about you, about you, about the obstacles in you that hinder you from having a servant's heart. And as he points out areas where you have to allow a man, where you have already allowed a self-centered, self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-serving attitude or mindset to set in, to creep in, you got to hear. You got to be open to hear what he's trying to tell you. The areas of serving responsibilities where you've allowed it to become more about you than about him. Where you've allowed your personal relationships to be more about you than about others and about the Lord's glory. Remember what we said about ministry. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels of grace to the glory of God. You and I, as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, you and I are to be those loving channels of the grace of God to meet human needs through the divine resources provided by the Lord. We are called to be be channels, not reservoirs. We are called to be outlets, not reservoirs and holding tanks. Just as we were saved by grace through faith, we must work and serve by grace through faith as we minister. Only then can God work in and through us all for his glory. We didn't earn grace. And we certainly didn't deserve grace. We simply received grace as God's loving gift. And then we are to share it with others. In ministry, we are to be channels of grace, of the resources that God provides. In the book of Luke, chapter 6, it tells us, give and it will be given. Good measured, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will it be poured into your lap? For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Everything you and I have, it's been given to us. God can use you. God can use your experiences. He he can use your training. He can use your money. He can use your talent. He can use your education. I'm not poo-pooing on any of that. He can sanctify any of those and use them as assets in service. But hear this. Assets 
become liabilities apart from the grace of God. Assets, no matter how good those assets are, become liabilities apart from the grace of God. Always remember that our sufficiency is not of ourselves, it is of God. The Lord is not looking for great leaders. He's looking for great servants who know how to follow the leader. Neither the church nor individual followers or ministry areas are owners of anything. We are the owner's representatives. We are stewards, but we are not owners. The church, neither the church nor individual followers or ministry areas are the manufacturer of the resources needed for ministry. We are not the manufacturer. We are simply distributors of the manufacturer. So you don't have to be afraid of new ministry challenges that look to be too great too big. God calls us to do what he calls us to do. To fulfill his purposes in the earth, to meet human needs around us because we know that the Lord has the resources to meet the needs that he calls us to in the time he will, in, in his time and in his way. Because when it comes to ministry, all of us are bankrupt. Only God is rich. That's why God does not call us to be manufacturers. He's really calling us to be distributors. He alone has the resource to meet human needs. All we can do is receive from the riches of his grace and share them with others. You remember Peter when he was at the gate, beautiful, and there was a man there who had been laid there in, at the, the gate of the temple. He looked at the man and says, man, he says, silver and gold have we not. But such as we have, we give to you. And he wanted them to know such as we have is not from us. Such as we have are the resources that are divinely given from above. In all four of the gospel, there is an account that every one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all four record this account of the feeding of 5,000. In Matthew 14, you'll read it there. In Mark 6, you'll read it there. In Luke 9, you'll read it there. And in John 6, all of the gospel writers have the account of feeding 5,000 hungry people. The disciples didn't know what to do. But they still, they didn't, make, they didn't let that fact keep them from making their suggestions and informing Jesus of the situation. Why they couldn't do anything about the problem. In Matthew, the disciples bring the issue to Jesus. And he, they tell him, send these folks away into the villages so that they can buy food. 
Jesus' response to them is they don't need to go nowhere, feed them. In Matthew, Jesus is the one who brings up the problem because of the compassion that he had for these people that had been with him for this extended time. He says, they've been with me for three days and they're hungry and if they, they, they go, they will collapse along the way. What do we have to give them? What I like about when you, put, you read all four accounts, you come to see that Jesus, according to John, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. John tells us this was a test. Their first response is, send them away. In other words, just find a way to avoid the problem. And Jesus rejects that suggestion. And I'm beginning, as I read that, I began to wonder, do, are we ever tempted to find a way to get rid of the very people that God wants us to help? Because they, they, they got too much baggage. They're, it's too much trouble. The, the situation is too large. Philip. Can, can we feed these people? Jesus asked. And Philip says, listen, to feed these folk, we'll take a half year's wages. Jesus are you really saying that you want us to spend that much money to buy bread to feed these people? I can imagine Judas is pulling his beard out. Uh-uh, ain't gonna happen. That's not in the budget. How much bread you got? They find a boy with a lunch, five barley loaves and two fish. And he says, but what is this among such a great need? See, part of the problem was that the disciples were trying to be manufacturers. They thought it was their responsibility to come up with the money, come up with the food, come up with a clever idea to solve the problem and meet the need. While all the while, Jesus was testing them and he already had it in his mind what he was going to do. I submit that Jesus needed his disciples not as manufacturers, but as distributors. The young boy gave his lunch to the disciples. The disciples gave it to Jesus. Jesus took what they had and put it in his hands. He looked up to heaven. He gave thanks for it. And then he broke it and he gave it out to his disciples' hands for them to, to feed the hungry crowd. He, was, he told them, be organized. Put them in groups of 50 and hundreds. The multiplication 
took place in the hands of the Lord and the distribution was the work of the hands of the disciples. A manufacturer's mentality makes us prone to depend on our own resources and if we are dependent on our own resources, we tend to take credit for success. Who got the credit for the feeding of the 5,000? It wasn't the disciples who handed it out. The credit went to Jesus. In fact, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. But when we have a servant's heart where the underlying motives are ones that the Lord commends, ones that the Lord approves of, proves us, when we can admit that we are bankrupt and that we are who we are but only by the grace of God, he alone gets the glory as we serve, as loving channels of grace bringing divine resources to meet human needs and fulfill the will of our God on earth. How's your heart? I want to give you an assignment as we come to a close. Check your heart out. What are the underlying motives of your heart, of your service? Is it self-serving? Is it self-centered? Is it self-seeking? Is it self-absorbed? Is it a what's in it, me, it, in it for me versus the call of God? Is it for my glory or his glory? Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to expose your heart to you and to help you to root out any remnants of the world's attitude in your heart. It's, you, you listen, you are still in the world. You're not of the world, but there are two natures at war within you. Ask God to help you to defeat the old nature that wants the honor, that wants the glory, that wants the attention, that wants the fame. Have the Holy Spirit cultivate a sacrificial serving spirit within you. Check your heart. Check the underlying motives. Number two, cultivate a servant's heart. How, pastor? By serving. By personal reflection. Through prayer. Scripture reading. Reading of biographies of people who were great servants. Read the account of their lives. Be obedient to the Lord. And lastly, periodically, expose your heart to that which breaks God's heart. Stop living isolated lives. Expose your heart to what breaks God's heart in your community, the city, the country, or the world, and let your heart be broken for what, break God, what breaks God's heart. 
And then ask God what he wants you to do about it. He may say, I got other folks that's going to handle it. I want you to pray for them. But your heart needs to be broken by this because it breaks my heart. I don't want you to become insensitive to it and hard to it. Let your heart be broken. And your heart to be exposed to it is more than just what you see on television. You got to get closer and let your heart be broken. He may say, well, I just want you to support what's being done. I want you to give to support it. Or he may say, I want you to be a voice, an advocate. Or he might say, I want you to roll up your sleeves and do something about it. He wants you to have a Popeye moment. I can't take it no more. Ah. Thirdly, Channel the Lord's resources. Channel the Lord's resources to meet human needs with a mindset of a distributor and not a manufacturer. As a representative and not an owner. As a worker, not management. What human needs he calls you to to meet, he will divinely provide the needed resources. The anatomy of a servant involves the call. The anatomy of a servant involves a servant's heart. And so my question to you as we come to the close, have you responded to the Lord's call on your life? He calls you to follow him. And in that call, there's the call to serve. There are no exemptions, no exemptions. It's a call to serve on his terms. It's not about your convenience. It's about his desires and his will. How's your heart? Are there any blockages that have become obstacles to the flowing of the kinds of attitude and motivation that the Lord approves and commends? Got any blockages there? Do you need the Holy Spirit to put in um, some stints to open up the flow of servanthood in your life? need the Holy Spirit to perform some bypass surgery, double bypass, triple bypass, around the things that keep you from giving yourself fully to the work of God for His glory and not your own. Have you walked away from God? Have you walked away from the call of God on your life? didn't happen in a moment. It was kind of a slide. You gradually walked away from God. It's what we call a backslider. You, you, you moonwalked away from God. You kept on making the, these, these uh, justifications. You kept on making excuses.
until you find yourself estranged from God. Why don't you come back home? Why don't you return to your call, the call on your life? Return to the call to service. How, preacher? You do it by returning to Jesus. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and, and just close your eyes. It starts with the, you answering the call to salvation. And the call to salvation is an ABC response. It's acknowledging that Jesus Christ, he gave his life for you because of you to save you. Acknowledge it. It's believing that he is the only way to life, to true life. He is the only one that can give true life and forgive you. Ask him, forgive me. I've sinned. I've come short of your will and purpose for my life. I've wasted many years. Forgive me. And then commit your life, the rest of your life, to the Lord's service to follow him as Lord and Savior. Commit, make the commitment. Acknowledge, believe, make the commitment. And let your life and words confess Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray for those that are listening that have not surrendered to you. I pray in this moment that they will take hold of the simplicity of this response to acknowledge, to believe, to commit. Bring back the backslider and let them say yes to you. In Jesus' name. The Bible says, with the heart we believe and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You have your assignments. Check your heart. Check your motives. Be a channel of the grace of God, His resources. Remember that you're a distributor, not a manufacturer. God bless you. We hope and pray that you've received something from this message. We, we look forward to being with you, seeing you next week at the Lord. Carry. We are continuing this sermon series, The Anatomy of a Sermon. Thank you for joining us this week. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and tag us in your social stories at C-O-G-E-N-Y. Thank you to those who have given generously to this ministry in the past. And if you'd like to become a contributor, head over to cog-eny.com. That's cog-eny.com. And just click on the offering and donations tab. Again, thank you so much. Now God bless.